E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Nick Mills of Rippin on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Excellent. Thanks, Levy. Really good. Nice to have you here. Yeah, good to be here. So your winery is in central Otago in New Zealand. Yeah. And how did it get started as a winery? What was the backstory? Where? How does it get started as a winery? Well, first, it's a piece of land. Um, Ripon itself is not so much a brand as actually a place. It's a, a very unique piece of land uh, that was bought by my great-grandfather in 1912. So, yeah, we've been on the land for 100 years last year and uh, four generations on the farm. The third generation of those farmers was my father, Rolf, and he started experimenting with vitis vinifera in the early 70s and then uh, planted the first commercial block in 1982. Uh, so that's really the beginning of it, but um, that was sort of the continuation of a long association of our family with that piece of land. So your father planted the vines, and what, where did he come from, and what was the story with your dad? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he, he grew up uh, as a young boy uh, in... New Zealand and the South Island of New Zealand, obviously. And uh, there was two things. There was, uh, firstly, uh, his family, uh, our family, uh, at the time were warehousing um, soft goods really into, into New Zealand and, and Dunedin, which was the largest port town in the time. And uh, so he grew up in that family, but, the, but um, and he was sort of uh, looked after or cared for by his grandparents, uh, my great-grandfather and grandmother, um, for one reason or another. Uh, that's how it happened. And uh, and they had wine on the table, uh, which was quite rare. He was born in 1923, uh, so he grew up in the 30s. Prohibition, we had that as well, and, and depression, certainly depression. And so, for a young young man to to be growing up at that time with wine on the table was very very unique. Um, the other part of the family story is is the farm, is, is Wanaka Station, what what became Ripon. Um, he grew up there, um, farming there, and uh, looking at the piece of land and trying to understand what its potential was for any type of agriculture, viticulture, just under, trying to understand the land and have a look at it. And and uh, it's a beautiful piece of land. He used to sit on the hill there as a young lad and uh, and come up, try and come up with ideas with what how he might farm it. 
not so unique for his generation. He went off to the war. Uh, he was in the submarines in the Atlantic in the Second World War, and um, like like all of his peers, uh, at the, straight out of school, really. And um, after that, he came back, so legend has it, uh, via Portugal and saw that there was schist in the Douro Valley, uh, sh- saw the saw the, the schist uh, that the vines were planted in, and uh, said, you know, that's kind of like our land, and I think that's where really it first sparked the idea of viticulture. He had wine, and he had grown up with wine, and then he saw where it was growing, and he put two and two together, and, and I think that's really was uh, the sort of genesis of the dream, at least. Uh, when he came back to New Zealand, he wasn't able to come straight back to the family farm for one reason or another. He was sort of ushered into the family business of warehousing in Dunedin, and then ran um, a number of different warehouses in um, in New Zealand, uh, and had a, had his first family. He, he married Myra, um, his first wife, and had three kids with her. She passed away at around about the same time as the family company, Sagwood Son and Ewan, was absorbed or at least disbanded. And uh, out of that, he got a golden handshake, and that prompted the sort of uh, the uh, allowed him to be able to come back to the family farm. He married my mother. Um, she was 46. No, she, he was 46 and she was 21 when they got married. So pretty cool, I think, for both of them. Um, and uh, and they came back and built the family homestead and started up our family and started, that was in the early 70s, and started experimenting with Vitasmurfa straight away as soon as they moved back onto the family farm. And what did he plant when he planted? Planted everything he could find. Um, you have to imagine that back in those days, the, the viticultural model of... Uh, of New Zealand was very much based on uh, probably Australasian sort of uh, cultivars and certainly uh, mo- the Dalmatians had been doing a lot of work, uh, the Cro- Croatians and um, Brekovic's, um uh, Corbins, um, I'm sure I'm missing out a number of them there, but um, you know, all up around sort of Auckland, uh, Hawke's Bay, Gisborne was really the, um, I think, this where the New Zealand wine industry began. And so, looking that far south, even into the South Island, let alone down into Central Otago, was something really quite. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, different, certainly, um, but quite a, uh, a long reach in, um, in terms of imagining or understanding what might be able to grow. And so most people told him that nothing would work, which really just gave him the impetus to, to plant everything he could find. He planted all of the planting stock that, that was available. Um, we had about 25 different varieties um, to start with. And from that original stock, we were taking cuttings. And I can say we because it was our school holiday job when we were kids, was to take the cuttings off the, the best cultivars, the best vines, um, the ones that were performing the best, that's to say growing and, and issuing the most balanced fruit, and then planting them through our own nurseries and then planting out parcel by parcel over about 15, 20 years. It took us to plant out the whole vineyard, uh, but slowly narrowing down to the six varieties that we have today. What are those varieties today? So uh, we have, out of the 15 hectares, we have about 14, 14.8 hectares of, of grapes. Uh, what's that, like 30 acres or something? Yeah, 30, um, 35. 35 acres, yeah. So... Uh, just over half of that uh, is in Pinot Noir. Lots and lots of different planting material, lots of different clones. Uh, all Vitis vinifera directly into the ground. Um, and uh, So they're not grafted. So they're not grafted, no. Which would be unusual for it, a lot of people It's very unusual. Yeah, back in those days, in the pioneering days, for us, it was it's not so unusual. But now, certainly, uh, obviously, Phylloxera uh, is in central Otago. Where we are, we're quite isolated in our own right, in our own valley, and we, we don't use any contract crews or, um, or machinery. It's all 
all it's all we do all of our work ourselves on the property um so really the only risk is someone coming in and bringing it in on their feet i guess but so we have protocols for that as well but then we have riesling we have about 2.5 hectares of riesling um just a little bit less of gewurztraminer um a little bit of tiny little bit of gamay we also make sauvignon blanc and osteiner as well osteiner is a little german hybrid that we have so all of those varieties, um, particularly the first four, uh, let's say Pinot Noir, Riesling, Gewürz and Gamay, are just are there really in function of the fact that they are really perfectly suited to that site after many, many years of empirical observation and understanding. And, and, I, and I say perfect, whatever that means. What, what I really mean to say is that we don't need to adjust the must anymore. Um, we don't need to use acid, sugar, water, yeast, um, vitamins, nutrients. We can just issue the fruit and it's balanced enough to be able to issue that into wine um, without having to adjust it. And the wines seem quite good to me. I mean, I've had some good experiences. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we, we like them. <laughs> um, mainly, though, it's really it's a product of our land and, and it was land first. It wasn't like we were let's say, uh, sitting in a restaurant um, somewhere looking overlooking a vineyard and being inspired to become wine growers and coming down to central Otago and buying up hectares of land and then, you know, uh, planting into it because the real estate agent and the viticulture consultant told us that would be the place to plant it. And um, No, it's a piece of land uh, that is, a, as I say, a unique piece of land. We see it as an individual. We approach it as a, as a, unique, and, and, um, a, a unique individual and that's how we farm it. Uh, it's really just trying to do justice to that piece of land and allow that to have an expression through the products that it produces. It just so happens that over the years we've found that uh, Vitis vinifera and particularly some very noble varieties, fortunately for us, um, are able to prosper there and, and to grow and to, and to produce more issue uh, balanced fruit. So you're in central Otago and where are you in central Otago and what is that place like? Hmm. Uh, central Otago is a, is a very beautiful place. Uh, it's um, not just beautiful for the eye, um, the human eye, but the, the the landforms that you see and that are attractive to the eye are actually very attractive to, to growing Vitis vinifera as well. Uh, it sits on the 45th parallel, so um, we're right on the other side of a very large chain of mountains uh, called the Southern Alps of New Zealand, and we have a, a westerly airstream that goes around the bottom of the planet called the Roaring Forties, and it only hits landmass twice, so South America and New Zealand, and it's, so it goes across vast expanses of ocean can pick up a huge amount of velocity it brings in systems from um, in the uh, spring equinox they come in from the sort of more tropic sides or sort of north of us and then in the autumn equinox they start starts drawing in EMSs from underneath us towards from from in Antarctica and mixes them all together and drives them around and around the planet when it comes around underneath Australia, it's often heavily laden with moisture and hits these 10,000-foot peaks straight out of the ocean um, and drops all of its rain. It's about uh, 5 to 10 metres of rain falls on the other side of the ridge from us every year. That's to say 20 to 30 feet. It's one of the wettest places in the planet over there. And then we have a very strong rain shadow happening from there on. Uh, and we, we are right behind it, um, uh, right behind the mountains, and then extending further down the valley that, it gets hotter and colder and drier the further you get away, the more powerful that brain shadow becomes. Central Otago itself, Central Otago proper, sits um, like Alexandra that would be, sits right um, in the very uh, hottest and coldest and driest part of New Zealand. New Zealand's only continental climate, really, viticulturally speaking, because of that. Everything else is maritime. Um, but 
where we are in Wanaka um, and where Ripon is, we're right up underneath that divide. So we're the closest proximity to the main divide, which means we're not quite as hot, not quite as cold, not quite as dry. We're the most temperate microclimate of central Otago, but softer. And obviously being next to a big lake, a, a large thermal mass, um, that's to say it only changes two degrees from summer to winter, it... Um, it cools the hot days down and warms the cold nights up. So it's another sort of temperance device, if you like. And so it's a very soft environment, um, which means that we don't have a huge amount of flesh in our wines. We don't um, have a lot of mass. Everything's um, a little bit more precise, perhaps detailed, um, elegant, if you like. Uh, it's not a word I nest would use myself, but it's just a little bit more high line and, um, and, and articulate, perhaps. So that's the climate. Yeah, how how does it work with the growing? What, how do you farm? Basically, uh, for me, it's about um, trying to allow the vine to be communicative of its place and its soils. So that's um, you know obviously issued to us from from the ancients, from the the Cistercians and the Benedictines before them, and and we we have been influenced by that. Everyone that grows Pinot Noir, I think, is influenced in that and um, by that in some way. It's this notion of. Um, having a certain deference to the land and, and uh, um, looking, uh, trying to understand the land, create a relationship through the land, certainly from the Cistercian side of things, it was even more developed that, than that from a religious side to um, the, the more that we uh, expressed or reflected our surroundings uh, in our work, uh, let's just say our uh, architecture, our food, our wine, the more we glorified God, the, the, more, the closer we got to God's creations or, or glorifying God. Um, I think those creations, for me at least, I just call nature, um, and 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 the spirit and the um, and the site itself, uh, trying to issue that into into something that we can taste and feel. Do you spell it nature with a dash where one of the vowels would be? How's that? I'm just kidding. It's, it's a little bit of an obscure kind of uh, yeah. Jewish joke. Yeah, Maybe, all right. You may, you may not have many Jews. So. Uh, I'm married to one. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, yeah. I don't get the joke. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Actually, that's how it usually goes. Okay. It's knock knock. Who's there? I don't get the joke. Is most of the jokes I tell. Yes, right. Okay. So, uh, in terms of glorifying nature, what does that mean for you? In terms of a practical uh, method. Hmm. Uh, it's trying to. Farm in such a way that the the the, the vine, uh, the individual, is tied to the land. So we uh, understand from nature. We take from let's say we take from biology that uh, a plant can't metabolize minerals directly out of the soil. That's not its. Uh, that's not how it evolved. It evolved 1.8 billion years after the first microflora came onto the planet. And when you cogitate that for a second, it's quite a remarkable idea. Is that you know the largest biomass on the planet that still exists is the um, is the is all of the microflora of our soils and our land. Uh, they are they were there for almost two billion years before the first roots of the, the plant roots came down into the land. So the, the the plants weren't trying to metabolize those minerals directly out of the soil. They were getting the nutrition from the soluble exudates or the, or the byproducts of the microflora of the soil. And so, if we are trying to, if our craft is to try and get the vine to be communicative of our soils, our true craft is to know, understand, and work that um, that that microflora, that li- that life, and that medium that allows that um, the 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 soil and the rock to be translated into into plant matter. So that's how that's the sort of overall thing. How we do that is uh, clearly no irrigation. It's biodynamic farming. It's um, 
its uh, patience. It's not. It's trying to allow the vine to. Um, is not to force it so much. If we have young vines that haven't got their roots down, don't try and put a. Don't over extract them and and get out. Uh, get out unnoble phenolic material. Just allow them to be young vine wines, and then work and start waiting and just have that patience to wait until you get to 15, 20, 30 year old vines, and then you can start extracting. You can start pulling out. You can start making. You know, issuing more robust. Uh, wines from that, at least phenolically speaking. I don't mean robust as in, um, you know, tannat or anything, but just in terms of uh, looking for the 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 tannins, the, the the true matter of the seed, if you like. That's not highly developed in a young vine. And it seems like that would manifest itself in terms of the different bottlings that you yeah. make, because you yeah. you use different fruit into different bottlings. And what are those for Pinot, and, yeah. and how do you distinguish? Yeah, Pinot. Um, we have four different Pinot Noir. So we have the Ripon, uh, which is all of the mature vines off the whole property. We call it the Ripon. Uh, Ripon is, uh, as I said before, it's a place. Uh, so it, it's a Lyodi in its own right. Um, so Ripon is. Uh, is our sort of flagship, if you like. It's who we are. It's, it re- re- represents our farm. Uh, it's also what we make most of as well. We take the young vines out of that picture. So everything under sort of 15-year-old vines, um, 15, uh, they, these aren't really communicative of their place yet. So we just, as I said, issue that. No new oak, just um, all, all very, very light handling. Um, so there's our two our two principal wines. After that, we have two other smaller uh, klima, if you like, much more precise sites that we can show off as well, which is uh, Emma's Block and Tinkersfield. And what are those like? Uh, well, Emma's Block is a is probably our most unique. Um, I'm going to use the Burgundian word klima. It just uh, it expresses. Uh, the site a, a lot better uh, in terms of um, it is its own unique exposition, its own soil. It has, uh, though it's all planted on schist, uh, we haven't talked a lot about that yet, but it's it's schist, it's all precision and detail and compaction. Like your dad's in Portugal. Right, yeah, exactly. It's a metamorphic rock. Uh, so Tinkersfield is pure schist, uh, pure schist gravel, so very precise and detailed and compacted in its phenolics, whereas uh, the Emma's block has a little bit of clay running laterally through it, so cl- ancient clay bed, uh, the ancient lake bed uh, clay lenses, these little sort of sausages of clay that run through the schist gravels, and uh, and this gives the wine a little bit more sleekness, a little bit more mobility in its in its uh, phenolic makeup and, and the mouthfeel at the end of the palate. What's it like to to work with schist? Uh, well, it's magic. <laughs> I mean, I'm I. I Learned my craft on on a, a, a on clay limestone complex uh, and uh, and a little bit of granite up in in Alsace as well. But it's uh, coming back and, and working with schist. It's an amazing. It's 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 beautiful. It's got a huge amount of light um, uh, refractivity, so the the light gets into it and then refracts out in lots of different ways. So uh, in terms of how that. Uh, is expressed into wine is, is again all about precision, detail, a sort of layered effect to the phenolics as well. Um, how is it to work with it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I have this feeling that uh, when you look at um, Vitis vinifera and uh, how where it evolved on the sort of uh, eastern Anatolia and the Transcaucasia, um, Georgia, Armenia, uh, eastern Turkey, all of that sort of. Uh, 
where Vitis vinifera was sort of evolved is really hard, rocky escarpment slopes, essentially. And so these are very fine and articulate root hairs that can get into that stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so you can you you, you, you compare that to say American rootstock, which is you know the muddy banks of the Mississippi, where you know you've got a very uh, thick uh, root mass that can go straight through clay clay soils, uh, root um, uh, uh, riverside riparian uh, margins, if you like. Uh, this is a much fatter root here. Obviously, it coexisted with certain parasites, phylloxera being one of them. Um, the, the, that parasite didn't really want to kill its host. It just put its proboscis in. It, it, of course, it scars when it takes it out, and the sap can still get through. Whereas if you do that on uh, Vitis vinifera, the, the, the proboscis goes in, uh, it, it scars the root here, and the sap can't get through, and the vine perishes. So it's quite a different uh, anatomy of, uh, of root hairs that, are, um, that, that, that take purchase or find purchase in, in, our, in our soils. Uh, and schist is, is exact, needs that. Needs, it's, got, it's very folly and leafy and compressed in, in its makeup. And so you need very fine root hairs. We don't need, but it's advantageous, let's say, to have very fine root hairs that can actually get into that stuff. What you're saying is Phylloxera is an, intending to kill part of what it needs for its symbiotic relationship of life. It's, it's trying to live with the host, but it, yeah. with these different kinds of root hairs yeah. that are uh, not what it grew up with, yeah. it ends up killing them because yeah. they're 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 a little bit smaller. So to my understanding, that's that that's how how I was taught and what I was taught. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's like angel hair pasta, as opposed to possibly. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, um, parasites they don't kill their they don't want to kill their host. It's I think that's called something else. Actually, a true parasite is it lives on its host and 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 uh, feeds off its host, but it doesn't actually kill it. It's not its goal, if you like. Because you have non-grafted vines, yeah. you have these angel hair yeah. roots going down into yeah. a particular kind of soil that yeah. you find that advantageous because yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, working with this schist that yes. you're talking about. Oh, yeah. You can imagine, when, when we take, dig a hole in the in the property and we go down maybe three or four meters into the, into the rock and you can um, take out a, a piece of rock, um, like a flat, um, uh, uh, like a plate-sized piece of rock and you'll pull it out um, on the top, there's just dust. There's no life on the top. You can just, just blow the, the, the soil straight off the top of it. And on the bottom, there's this big sort of wad of uh, microflora of uh, organic matter essentially sitting on the bottom of it uh, because water uh, percolates through because they laid flat because the, the rocks are flat. It can't wick back out. The water can't be wicked back out. So all the life sits on the bottom. And that's where all the root hairs have find, found themselves. They all, um, you know, in, as I said, it's in symbiosis with the microflora of our soil as well. They're, they're excreting, um, they're, they, they have a relationship with that. Uh, so what happens next is that uh, wherever there's water, there's life. Water is life. Uh, we're talking about bacteria, protozoa, fungus, fungi, um, nematodes. These are organisms that are 99% water essentially with a thin carbonaceous shell around them. They are essentially water, as we are, <laughs> as all life is. And so wherever there's water, there's life. And so this water might seep into one of these cracks in the, in the schist and get in there. And of course, if you've been farming properly, if you're putting out you know, uh, fungal-based compost onto your land, that will be transformed eventually or uh, very quickly perhaps 
into um, into that into life, and so then the roots obviously are going to follow that in because they're getting their nutrition off the soluble exudates of that of that medium, and then you try and take one of these rocks after like 20, 30 years, you're trying to take one of these rocks out of that soil that soil profile that wall that you're standing in because you're standing in a hole essentially, uh, you try and pull that out of the ground and it's just got this big sort of web of of root hairs that are holding onto it and you can see that they're all just completely infiltrated and taken over the rock. And that's where you can start talking about tewa. You know, you can't, if, if, you, if you're working in such a way that you're feeding with irrigation and putting soluble fertilizers on the surface, this interaction will never happen. Uh, so it's a long and, and uh, it's, a, it's a process that takes a long time. It takes a lot of work. Uh, it's, it's manual labor mostly, you know, making compost and hand hoeing um, to, to keep the weeds down. But, and and uh, obviously without irrigation, you, it's, it, it needs patience uh, to, to get there. But because the roots need to go yeah, further yeah, down yeah, to find the moisture. Absolutely. Well, the moisture is actually that life. We don't really look at water holding capacity in the vines or in the soils as... Um, the liquid that you and I think of as water, we we see it as life. We just try and bind all of that water up um, into life so then the vines can feed off it. What were some of the influences for you in developing uh, where you're at philosophically? I mean, you're working biodynamically now. Uh, it was it was organic from the start when your dad mm-hmm. planted. You guys use mesol selection vines from mm-hmm. your own nursery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's as you mentioned, not grafted, which is unusual for the yep. world. You know, yep. usually things are grafted under Absolutely. American rootstock. Uh, what was your own route to find the wine that <laughs> you ended up developing this philosophy? Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in the vines. Obviously, I, I, I had um, certain mentors. Uh, my father. Clearly, uh, but he was just my dad. You know, he's just, he's just dad. He's so you ignored whatever he <laughs> yeah, had exactly. to say. You know, you <laughs> that know. guy's full of it. Turn <laughs> yeah, on the TV. Uh, totally. Well, that's it. You know, I mean, it's only until you get, become a man yourself and you look back at and you realize just what what a cool thing he was doing. But at the time, it was just what he was doing. You know, and it's okay. So that's what your dad does. And, and my mother as well. She created the business, whereas uh, Rolf just sort of had the vision and 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 worked in the vines. Uh, the first person in my life that sort of gave me some indication that it might be a cool craft was actually Rudy Bauer, who was um, uh, it was great to have him at, the, at, a, at a tasting that we did that we put on here in New York yesterday. Uh, he he was a, a young uh, Austrian guy that had just come out of. Uh, come out of school essentially or he had actually done some um, probably the first really experienced and, and qualified uh, winemaker that came into Central Otago and he was he made some, he made some of the wines that um, that were that we from the early 90s 91 92 he, wor- and he worked at Rippin he worked at Rippin and so I was working in the vines with him and he was um, sufficiently uh, let's say eccentric and sort of uh, philosophically minded um, which we so we we we, we communicated well in the vines when I was a, as a late teenager, but then uh, when I left school, I had a um, uh, got sort of bitten by the sort of Olympic glory bug, and I tried to get to the Olympics in '98 in Nagano for for uh, uh, freestyle skiing, um, and and just about got there. I was number one seed in the in the country and New Zealand champion for a wee while, and then blew my knee uh, about. Five months before Nagano, and so that that was the end of that dream, and that really was the impetus for me to well, redirected me back towards wine. And I we used to live in France when I was seven, uh, when my parents were learning their craft, and so I had French somewhere in my. I went to primary school over there for a year, had it somewhere in my in the back of my head. Uh, I used to dream in it, <laughs> which was quite weird. Used or, to dream in French, yeah, but without 
was did it involve a lot of cheese? Yeah, 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 exactly. I had all these the people would come up and offer me things and 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 talk to me in French in my dreams, and I'd wake up and have no one. And I'd talk to them, but I'd have no idea what I said when I woke up. It was quite strange. And that was for like 18 years before I eventually went back there. Uh, when I went back, uh, I didn't really know anyone. I found the, the, the CFPPR, the school in Bourne, the technical institute there, and ended up going to school there and uh, worked in Burgundy for four years, worked and lived in Burgundy for four years uh, for a number of different uh, very special domains. Um, in terms of mentors uh, while I was there, um, Probably the first is really um, Alain-Sophie Meunier from Jean-Jacques Conferent. Uh, I spent a year there, and that's where I did all my stages. Um, Nicolas Portel uh, and perhaps uh, Pascal Marchand. Uh, Benjamin LaRue is good fr- a good friend, um, not so much a mentor, just a, a party buddy. Uh, then I was finishing off these vintages up in Alsace as well at Domaine Albermann. So uh, the, the, the Barthelmy brothers, uh, Mac, uh, Jackie and Maurice, were, were huge influences in terms of how I approached the craft. And at this stage, I'd already been started to um, be exposed to, let's say, uh, um, a certain way of working. Obviously, I grew up on an organic farm, but you know, from Napoleonic inheritance laws, when you've got uh, uh, 10 different ways of working in the same vineyard, it's quite special to be able to see that and to understand it uh, and to see how people work. So I came in from a really empirical side in terms of going, okay, how can I, how can I, uh, um, if you walk into a vineyard and you see uh, this guy works in one way and the other one, you go into the vines and you see the soils, you smell the soils, you taste the fruit, um, you feel the environment that's in there in terms of the insects and all the life that's happening. You taste the fruit. You you, you ask um, if you can come and taste, if you're interested enough, you go and taste in the winery, um, in the cellar, and you see the person um, is passionate and they, they love their craft and, and, uh, and attached to their land. And you see that um, the wine is very articulate and, and speaks very clearly of its place and you see the staff are happy and the wine is selling in the marketplace and you're just like <laughs> what you know you start to make an idea about how you might want to work so it came from a very empirical side of things while I was um, I got the opportunity to work eight months at the Mandelahomini Conti at the same time as they were starting to convert into biodynamics as well and so I worked under a guy called Philippe Fontaine there that was um, was developing the biodynamic program and I think it was he that encouraged me to do a, a course with uh with the GGPV, the, the Young Wine Growers Association, essentially of Burgundy, um, with Pierre Masson, who's a biodynamic practitioner there in the, um, in the Maconay. And, and we, uh, with, along with a, a lot of, uh, with Jeremy Sess and, and um, Hubert de Monti and a, a bunch of other wine growers, we all did this course together and travelled around northern France and, and uh, into Germany and, and just saw literally dozens of uh, different, how people worked in, uh, on different farms. And it just became clear that that was the way I needed, I wanted to farm. And, and uh, so as soon as I came home, obviously, uh, Aubert was a big influence in, in, in all of that as well, but more just from a, not so much from a land-based sort of uh, aspect, but more just the humility, uh, the the humility, the, um, it's, it's so uh, tied into the Burgundian DNA anyway, this idea of, uh, of that Cistercian, what we were talking about before, of just having a piece of land and, and trying to issue a product and using the, using the grape as a sort of a medium or, or a vector to be able to express our, our sight into um, into something that we can taste and feel. Um, and so that was about it. So as soon as I came home in 2003, something was really special was that I wasn't, didn't really feel like I needed to turn up and go, all right, these are my goals. I've just been working at these special places, whatever, you know, I've got to, this is how we're going to do it kind of thing. It was um, quite the opposite. It was, I'd been encouraged by, um, 
by everything I'd learned over there was to stand back from the land or at least start, begin again this relationship with the land that I had as a kid, but try and enhance that and try and get the culture and the whole of the team and all of our team to be able to be part of that. And um, so we're not, no one, no one has any titles. We're all polyvalent in the way we work and just try and um, understand the land, try and stand back from the land and ask what it wants as well. and, And just try and issue a product that's that's of that land rather than actually stamping on it and go okay these this is this is what i have in my head as a human this is what i want to see this is the sort of wines that i like is just actually invite the land to speak to you itself so you got back in 2003 to ripon and that's also about the time that the move towards biodynamic farming started it was right then yeah we changed straight like came home did the made the first comp um, we were making compost before but made the first biodynamic compost and applied those first preparations and really just uh, it was more of a cultural shift, I think, um, as I say, in, in terms of a, having a, um, a polyvalent team that everyone can do everything kind of thing. That was the probably the biggest shift that happened. So your dad planted a vine since 75. Yeah. What, is that how all how old all of them are or no. are there different ages involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 1975 was when the first experimental vines and the first, what we call the first commercial block went in in 1982. But most of the planting, certainly of the Pinot Noir, were planted between 86 and 91. Um, that, w- that was the bulk of the plantings. But we were planting, even when I came home in 2003, I, s- I still had some rationalization to do. If I use that word for the idea that we still had some varieties that, although they were performing from some years, that we had still had Syrah, we still had Merlot, we still had Chardonnay. Pull those out, plant with a with Riesling, Pinot, or Gewurz, essentially, and um, and uh, just narrow, keep honing it down. And so that was still happening. Uh, uh, my father passed away in two thousand, so he never he he saw the vineyard. No, he didn't actually even see it fully planted uh, in terms of the, the the area, but he certainly didn't see it fully replanted. You know, certain parts of it fully replanted, and it was actually. A, um, a bit of a sadness, really, to see that in 2005, I think, when I did the final plantings, essentially, to, to Rolf had already um, been gone five years by that stage. And so he didn't really see that. He also, uh, he missed one other thing, too, which was my, I found my mother crying in the office one day in about two, around about the same time. And uh, she'd just had two export partners pay the bill in the same month. And uh, and for the first time in 25, 30 years, we went into the black. So, And Rolf didn't get to see that. It was a bit of a shame. He didn't get to see. Uh, he didn't get to see yesterday. There was yesterday was a really special day for us being able to show uh, twenty different vintages of of our Pinot Noir here to people in New York. I think that was a really really special time. And um, when you when you've been working for that long and actually being able to issue a, a, a snapshot of of our history, essentially our story, and and one go like that, I well I I said I sort of had to be represent my father in, in that in my own way. And you talked about having the patience to watch and wait for vines to gain the maturity that they need in terms of vine age. Uh, how do they express themselves over time? How have they expressed themselves over time in that climate? When do you start to really find what you're looking for? At what age? Yeah, I don't think there's any one age. Uh, there's different sites and different cultivars uh, grow and, and express themselves in different ways at different times. Uh when I kind of I think I can really relate it to almost to human years in some respects is that if you ask a a five year old uh, what its expression of its surroundings are, it might take a piece of paper or you give it a piece of paper and some crayons and and it'll draw uh, you know mum dad and the kids kind of thing with a. Um, 
very vibrant and endearing uh, image, a, a way that they're doing it, um, and the and the image itself might be. Um, colourful and, 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 as I say, vibrant, but it won't have a lot of detail yet. It won't have a lot of, um, uh, it won't be very articulate either. It'll be, it'll just um, be something that you should cherish. Uh, and if you, if they, if, if the parents aren't being too overbearing, let's say not pushing it around too much, it can just stay exactly what as that. You can put it in a nice big thick book and put it in the library and hopefully 20 years later when you take that book out and have a look at it, it'll present very much the same sort of picture but it won't have developed or changed over the years uh, so that's what we see from our uh, from our young vine wines that are now 20 years old 20 or, or 20 plus years old uh, and I actually see that when you I got to taste um, uh, many wines at, uh, at La Romani Conti it was a um, privileged time in turn because they had whenever their customers would come through or the export partners they would taste wines and have you know fond de bouteille like a, a little uh, little bit of wine left in the bottle and I was able to take those home and have them with my my, my spag, spaghetti bolognese or whatever I was cooking in our little apartment um, and one of the ones that really struck me was the 1952 Rishbol which is very much in that sort of same idea it's um, it's it's the one that Henri Loire wanted at his funeral. It's this very vibrant, beautiful, and daring wine, but it doesn't yet have a, doesn't have a lot of, I guess, complexity, and it hasn't really changed. You can see that the phenolics haven't been breaking down and developing into new stuff. It's just it's just it's very precise and and, and beautiful um, at the same time. So this is that would be that would be say five, ten, uh, maybe fifteen years. Once we get into the teens, we get into a little more difficult time. Just as in humans, uh, you know, one year you're you've got it'll tell you one thing the next year it'll tell you to you know bugger off it's uh, it, it wants to you know watch tv instead or uh rudy um, bauer uh, I, I said that same sort of thing to the masters of wine in london once and we were co-presenting rudy said no 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 it's got nothing to do with the fact that the vines are being recalcitrant or you know they're, they're going through their 10 years it's more about the parents are being too overbearing and it's true you know once you've got it, it happened for us it, um once you have this vibrancy of youth and, and fruit and you've issued that into a wine you get really excited and then you want to push a little bit harder and you might even start putting some new oak on there and stuff and start pushing it a bit and these wines become very inconsistent they don't last that last in time either so um, that that would be the sort of teenage years, but by the time you get to the twenties, now you start coming out of that. Uh, you can't come into this idea where you actually get some in vine age, twenty five, uh, fifteen, twenty, twenty five. Sort of certainly into the thirty years. Now you're getting into some articulation, some creativity as well, in the sense of um, uh, being able to articulate very well a certain site. Uh, and 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 you you get wines. When I'm talking about wines um, in terms of articulation, it's about detail. It's being able to not just have uh, one voice, but have many voices, uh, um, lots and lots of uh, articulate pieces to that phenolic matter, to that those tannins, and to the the, the shape and the feel of the wine. So that, that happens in the 30s, and then I think by the time you get into the 40s and 50s, um, it, this is uh, maybe the uh, fertility starts going down a little bit. The vine, you know, doesn't doesn't express quite as much. But what it is saying, it needs to be listened to. It's it, this is uh, this is where perhaps wisdom comes in as well. And when I when I'd say wisdom, using it in that analogy, would be exactly you have these long uh, uh, phenolic um, chains, uh, tannins, essentially that over time, and the bottle will break down and still and develop into different things that weren't previously there. So every time you go back to it, unlike the child's crown drawing, every time it's like the book. 
itself. You come back to it and read a page, it's sort of something else occurs to you, something else that you didn't see there before. So I think that's sort of, obviously, vines will carry on. So 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, you know, humans uh, are starting to, you know, perhaps lose their teeth and stuff. They don't have a lot to say, but what they do say, you sit down and you listen. Clearly, vines will outstrip it and they'll keep going on and on and on for past human years. But but that, for me, is how I kind of understand it. Obviously, I think um, Riesling's a little bit, that's Pinot Noir, Riesling's a little bit more of an intelligent or a gifted kid. It picks up that um, those detail, uh, that detail a little bit early, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. We're already starting to get shifts being shown in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the phenolic makeup of the wine. Well, so you worked with Aubert at DRC. Yeah. And they have... Uh, well-known choices involving oak use and stems mm-hmm. and the way that they ferment mm-hmm. in terms of mallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the choices that you've decided to make with the fruit that comes into your winery? Yeah, I'm, I'm led by digestibility, uh, by wine. Wine, for me, needs to be olfactory, uh, you know, have an olfactory stimulus, but mainly it needs to have a digestive one, a tactile one and a digestive one. Uh, so... Just to outline that a little bit, I just I'd say that I, fruit has two different purposes really in the way that we look at it. It's the first is the the skin and the colour and the the flesh, therefore the flavour, uh, the sugar, therefore the alcohol, uh, therefore all the high end ketones and esters and all the stuff that's up in your face when you're drinking wine. Uh, all of that's the attraction factor for the bird to come along and eat the grape. This is a really important part of the grape, but for me the truth of the grape is in the seed. It's the genetic matter that the vine has produced uh, has taken all of the, say, information, let's call it, off its land uh, and is issuing it into its prospective progeny, into its offspring, essentially, so it can be successful in that same environment. Uh, you can't taste or smell a seed or the dry matter of the skin, uh, which we'll be talking about in whites. Uh, so what you're what you're doing is uh, you're, you're looking at a texture and a feel, a shape and a form. Uh, and to issue that, it needs to be digestible. It needs to be something that you can chew and actually take into your body. Uh, so that's what we're led by. We're led by this idea of trying to throw energy into the seed and um, and develop the, the a texture the, the texture of the wine, the shape and form. We know this from the classical models. Uh, the difference between a vonne and a poma is not cherries and plums or something like that. It's a it's a shape and a feel. It's a form of the wine. So so we're led by that. Uh, in terms of uh, um, how that relates to uh, where I was working in, in France and and the people that I work with and how that may have influenced me, I sort of I guess I developed my own ideas after working at places that were using a lot of whole clusters or or new oak and, and what have you, and just uh, tried to think of. Um, uh, something wine being vinous and, and tonic and want, wanting the, the the body wanting to take it in. Uh, so when I look at uh, well, vin, vinegar, vin, vinous, um, it all comes from stretches from the idea that wine is something that's probably closer to vinegar than it is to fruit. And so really looking at um, trying to um, look at the development of our of our wines as, as a part of it as a part of a death cycle essentially. Like if you look at um, anabolic, and this is a Jacques Gladier sort of uh, analogy, uh, you've got um, the life cycle coming out of the uh, out of the ground and being issued all the way through into the into the grape, and at its summit it'll be the seed. It'll be uh, it'll it'll you know, be ready to propagate, um, to sorry, uh, germinate or to to send its seed to another place. This is um, 
This is the summit of that anabolic, that life cycle. At that point, the fruit drops off or you cut it off. And from that point, it'll go through primary fermentation, malolactic, acetobacter, all the way to vinegar. That's a, de- that's a catabolic cycle. That's death cycle going down or, or, or slant, if you like. Our craft is to try and um, develop that and, and at some point arrest it on its, let's say, death slide and uh, issue it uh, as... Um, um, cleanly as possible into a uh, inert recipient, a bottle, and present it for sale and consumption. A, uh, a pardon of some sort. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> An right. Executive yeah, pardon exactly, the exactly, exactly. Before death. Yeah, and and that and, and that's our choice. Where where we where we create that, where we give it that pardon, essentially. Uh, in the new world, uh, for many times, in the ways how, how wines have been qualified, uh, how they've been written about, how we want to make them, how we and therefore how we want to make them, uh, is really right up next to the fruit. It's it's uh, you know Gewurz for me, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, these are things that you generally have just you know for me indigestible in the sense that you it's all been created for the olfactory senses and not for the next part. Where the further you get down that line into let's say natural wines or wherever, the further you get away, the closer you to get vinegar, the more saliva runs in your mouth, the more that your body actually wants to take it in, um, for me. Um, so if we look at that and, and we, we, we think about we think about that in, in terms of how we approach our craft and in terms of what we're going to put into the wine as well, stems, for example, to use, to use your example, um, is uh, we will, every, our vineyard's massively parcelated just because of the way we planted. Um, we've got lots and lots of different parcels of different, um, different uh, plant material. And so we micro-ferment all of those uh, they come up, we pick them all um, more or less at the same time, but they come across, uh, we know when they're coming across the sorting table and we will put the first few bins of it through the distemmer and then taste the stems at the end. And if I can get some saliva and we can, we pass them around and we can get some, and it feels like that that wants to come into the body, that's to say it'll tell you straight away that it doesn't, it'll, your body will eject it, it'll spit it straight out if it's too astringent. But if it can be, then put them all in. Um, if they are digestible, put them all in because it's a better ferment- from, from from my point of view, it's a better fermentation, intracellular fermentation, um, better pathways for the yeast to run around. Um, it's, it presses out far better. You don't have to do ter- so many turnings. Technically, it's just a better way of fermenting. Kind of amazing how bitter and better are the same word for you yeah. in terms of the wine that you make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so so the problem is some of them taste like crap, you know. Some of them are indigestible phenolic. So I don't see it because um, you know Dujac or like does it or La Homme Conti or whatever. It's like I want to put a stylistic statement by putting fifteen percent whole clusters in my wine. That's ridiculous. If fifteen percent of of shit phenolics is 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 not going to help your wine, and it's not. You're probably going to have to find it, or, or if you don't, it'll never break down, and that'll appear like twenty years later. It'll still be sitting there when everything else is breaking down around it. So. Um, looking at it as something being led by that digestibility, led by the human, h- how we get in, we, we, that, that's that's what we're led by. So we make decisions based on that. Um, whole clusters, for example, were between sort of 25 to 40% whole cluster across the Pinot Noir. But we're also led by that in, in terms of Riesling and, and Whites, in terms of how we ferment. So uh, that's to say uh, we will... Uh, Press whole 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 bunch. Press, uh, put it um, put it in a tank. Um, don't strip it so we don't um, find the juice. It's full cloudy juice, and then ferment in a, a, a lay flat fermenter, a fermenter that's on its side, so it's got like a stainless steel foudre. Essentially, it's like um, got a huge amount of lees to wine ratio. It doesn't have any um, capping, so we don't um, push through CO two or nitrogen or argon or anything like that. It's still got oxygen in contact with it. It uh, doesn't have any nutrients, 
vitamins, adjustments, acid, water, sugar, yeast, doesn't need anything. It sits in that um, and will start fermenting naturally. Um, it doesn't have any heating or cooling, so it does go through a temperature spike, which means that you might lose some of those high-end aromatics and stuff, those attraction factors. Okay, um, hopefully not too many. Certainly in our environment, those things are a given anyway. But what it does do is solubilize all of those phenolics in the bottom in the in the in the barrel of the fermenter into the into the wine itself, and then it sits on its primary leaves. This is Riesling or Gewurz we're talking about it sits on its primary leaves for months for the for the whole winter sometimes, uh, unsulfured, uh, just in contact with its nutrition, in contact with its leaves, and solubilizing those that um, phenolic matter into the wine. So we get a wine that's perhaps more uh, precise and, 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 sort of, and, and digestible, essentially. That's pushing it further and further down that line towards death, let's call it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you make Pinot Noir, uh, you make Riesling, you make Gewurz, but you also said you make Gamay. And what's the difference between growing Pinot and growing Gamay, and what's the difference in the expression that you find? Uh, between Pinot and Gamay, in terms of how we grow it and how we approach it, there's very little difference. Uh, they both need, um, in our environment, vertical shoot positioning. They both need um, a lot of care. Uh, in terms of how we approach it in, in the winery, uh, more or less the same, uh, how we receive it in the winery. But, of course, Gamay, uh, we... Our gamay noir, at least some of our gamay we make into a rosé, a proper rosé. So that's one, not a senya. It's a, it's, it's macerated for um, until it starts fermenting. It'll stop, drop probably three or four bricks and be completely red juice. Um, but when we, when we press it off, but then all a lot of that colour drops out in the, in the ferment. Once we press it off and finish it off in tank, we make a little bit of a rosé like that. Uh, but the, 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 the main uh, thing that we do with it, uh, with our gamay, is make a noir, gamay noir, and that is. Uh, it starts off carbonic, so we we're harvesting the CO2 from the Gewurz fermenters. They come in around the same or come in sufficiently early that we have some fermenting uh, juice in the winery. So we harvest the CO2 from that and just put them in the put it in the bottom of the tank into the into the, just with a with a lead uh, uh, a pipe essentially that goes into the bottom of the the fermenter of the gamay, and it starts off the the gamay unsulfured in a uh, in not, again no adjustments, 100% um, whole cluster in a in a carbonic environment. Uh, we'll do a little bit a foot pigeage on that and have and open it up um, to do pigeage maybe only three or four times during its primary fermentation and then we press it off it'll finish off its last couple of bricks in, in tank uh, and uh, so it's, it starts off carbonic but it finishes with some oxygen contact but last three years we've been able to run that into bottle uh, it tracks more or less the same as the Pinot Noir some years it goes through mallow in the middle of winter some years it goes in the spring when, when the rest of the Pinots go but then we just draw that and issue that straight into bottle without sulfur, fining, filtering, nothing so it's, it's completely, completely alive and, and natural and, and, and a beautiful, beautiful wine so we talked a little bit about the climate. I noticed uh, when we tried an 08 and an 09 Ripon Pinot Noir recently that there were some differences in the wine, and you, you had mentioned that one year was a little hotter than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, what have the recent vintages been like, say, in the last 10 years in yeah. your area of New Zealand? Yeah, we... we at Ripon, of course, it, it, being a place, we don't buy any fruit in or sell any out, so we don't. We're not. Una we're unable to, or we don't really want to uh, mediate uh, the fruit or the, let's say, the vintage conditions by fruit from somewhere else. So we are, and even though we are a sort of semi-continental climate, we have to understand that we are just a, a relatively small island in a very large mass of water. Um, so, in, in an ocean. So. Uh, this means that we are subject to the vagaries of oceanic currents and weather systems and stuff like that. So our vintages do vary greatly. Uh, 
the, the, the important part is that the phenolic markers, those, the, what we were talking about before, the, the texture of the wine stays the same no matter what happens with the flesh and the colour and all of those attraction factors the, 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 the sitting on top. The, what underpins the wine in, in phenolics, and we saw that yesterday, there's a, a line that runs cleanly all the way through those 20 years essentially. Uh, but, but clearly the vintage will change. And we saw that dramatically between the 20, 2009 and 2010 yesterday in terms of colour. Um, you know, you've, you've, 2009 was a very overcast sort of year, uh, not a hell of a lot of light, uh, quite cool uh, during the growing. Uh, we finished off, um, Central Otago often has just beautiful uh, conditions during the harvest, but summer can be mixed up and, and things can change around. But late late summer, it starts to calm down and we get calm down and get beautiful um, in, in the end of the season. But in 2009, we had a lot of cover, so the, it's, a, it's almost like a, a wraith-like sort of beast. It's, it doesn't have, it hardly even exists almost in the glass, a very light colour, but you know, still the phenolic marks, still the precision and detail in terms of the texture of the wine. 2010, same shape, perhaps a lot more matter um, compressed into that shape and, and, and very, almost opaque, like very, very dark colour as well. So even physically, like visually, it's, it's a, a, they're two different wines. Going backwards from there, 2008, a warm, quite a warm vintage, um, quite plush for us and, and rare for us in that sense. It still has the, uh, that sort of articulate um, detail in the wine and that precision of the phenolics, but you have a lot more um, sort of flesh sitting on the top of it, if you like, because because it was a warm year. 2007, uh, frosted and uh, difficult flowering period in December, so very, very small yields, very compact and tight, but it was, I thought it was looking beautiful yesterday. I think it was the, pick, the standout for me. Uh, 2006, again, another warm year. 2005, a little bit more like the 07. We could go back if you like. But <laughs> well, I'd be curious yeah. to know. Which are real standout vintages in the history of Ripon for you since you just did a large vertical? You, yeah. You're familiar with some. What are the Pinot Noirs that uh, have really been key markers either for, um, you know, boy, I love that or boy, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. What have been the realization vintages? Yeah. Uh, well, all of them have been realization vintages in one form or other. Uh, we learn from every, every one of them. Uh, in terms of standouts i i don't i i have a difficulty in qualifying our, our vintages one like probably most wine growers you know we we sort of they are our babies kind of things you don't you can't we don't really have a qualification sort of rank to them but at the same time we could say that there are certain vintages that that um that, that were special to us mostly for cultural reasons or social reasons really uh 2003 um, for me, was a, was my first vintage home, and it's a really very special year. Um, it's like a 2001 Burgundy sort of thing, really honed down, um, uh, just great year for the land to speak clearly. So it was a bit of a gift for me to come home to that in a year where it was um, a very neutral year, not too hot, not too cold, and just um, clarity of place came through very, very loudly. So you imagine that was my as a first year, as it went out of the box, it was, it was great. It, and and it, that looked wonderful yesterday. So that's certainly one of them. 1992 was a really special year for us. Uh, um, uh, well, when you go back there, 1990, 91, 92, all of those, and the 93 that we're actually drinking now, I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> it's quite good. <laughs> um, but this is this is colder. You can see in 1990 it was a warm year, and every year after that it got colder and colder. You can, you can feel there's a, there's a bit of chill in the wine um, in, the, in, the, in the makeup of this. But uh, 92 was a special wine for us. It was the first time, uh, well, we, it was our fourth um, Pinot Noir under label and it got uh, the gold medal at the Royal Easter Show and the um, trophy for New Zealand's best red wine back in the days where entering shows was important, uh, to us at least. Uh, uh, 
that was the first time a pen and I had ever done that in New Zealand. Certainly the first wine out of Central Otago and for Ripon, Central Otago and Pinot Noir came on the map all at the same time. At that time. So historically a very important wine for us. The 1990 was as well in terms of just turning people's attention towards uh, some of our very successful winemakers in, in Central Otago now uh, as whether they were at high school or, or, or university that, that sort of turned their face to, 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 to Central in terms of hey something's going on down there and that was that was that was our one of our very first one of the very first wines to come out of Central the 1990 95 I thought looked exceptional yesterday um, that was Clotilde Chauvet not um, uh, yeah it, 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 I, I don't have any personal um, attachment to it I was at that stage I was already skiing and doing my own thing uh, 2000 I think is probably the year we first started to see maturity of phenolics coming into the wines you know it was, it was, it was coming out of its teens uh, we were talking about before uh, we're starting to get some noble phenolic matter in that and by about 2000 and we start seeing those the more um, texture and, and precision and detail in the, in the wines uh, 2003 five, yeah, that's probably about it 2010 kind of is a bit of a landmark for us we were running around the Winery high fiving each other when we were when we were sitting in barrel. Uh, 2012 uh, coming up, uh, going to be bottled in a, in a few weeks, is epoch changing. Maybe I'm not allowed to say that yet because it's still in barrel, but it seems, seems really really good. Yeah. Yeah. And why is that? Because um, it's taken this long. Um, it's taken this long for for us to understand how to how to do our job and how to relate to the land. And we may have forgotten it by, by next year. Who knows? In well, 2013, we did, I think we did a good job. But, um, but this the culture, the, the, the way that the human, humans have bonded together and created, a, created a, a culture on our property and a relationship with the land, it's taken a long time. And so before that, we were sort of, you know, throwing darts in the dark almost, you know. And, but now we we've, have a sense of confidence and, and feel good about our decision making processes and 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 feel good as a team. So I think things are things are really good right now. From this market perspective, when I think of New Zealand, I think of Sauvignon Blanc. Right behind that, I think of Marlboro. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of Nick Mills, Central Otago doesn't make Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, well, I do actually, but <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, <laughs> see, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. In terms of Nick Mills, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that a difficult road for you to hoe? Is to to uh, Explain exactly what you're up to and how many people like you are there in New Zealand who are working biodynamically and <laughs> talking about shape. And uh, yeah, there's a few, uh, not a lot. Um, I would say three or four um, that people people that, people that yeah. I communicate that we can communicate with on the same sort of level. I, when I came home in 2002, I felt hugely isolated. I'd not just learned uh, my craft in another language, but Literally, um, literally another language, but figuratively another language too. I, I, I approached and, and communicated about wine in a completely different way to to my colleagues and peers in, in Central Otago, and I think that's changed and developed. Yeah, people are sort of spe- yeah, sort of learning. Uh, well, the, the craft is changing in, Centra- in in New Zealand as well. People are people are approaching it slightly differently as well. Uh, in terms of um, New York and Nick Mills or, or, and, and Rippon and our, and our team and how how our wines are. Uh, approached and, and 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 how they find themselves here. Uh, we've had a difficult time in New York, I have to say. We've had uh, three false starts here. That's to say, me coming over and uh, spending time in the market and trying to find distribution. You've had a hard time too, um, with uh, lots of <laughs> you know not so favourable things in your uh, 
in your city over the over the last. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. No, I was no, like, no, I have, no, no, no. I have had a hard I, time. I know what you're talking about. For several <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Several false starts, my friend. Yeah, yeah. right. So I, I, we we had three, and and they they were probably um, from a timing thing uh, in terms of nine um, eleven and um, and global meltdown, and that pretty much seemed to happen. This is the ground zero for that, and and um, so we had a hard time getting into New York, and and you'd imagine for a small business family business like us spending money in a, in a city like this and st- staying here for three or four days trying to find distribution is incredibly expensive and, and if you come away from it with nothing you you know it's it's a you, you create a big hole uh, and that's what happened three times actually um, over the last um, decade although we have had our wines here um, we've had great supporters um, Roger de Gorn's had it at, at um, Mohache, uh, I mean sorry at uh, Chantal uh, had the had the Riesling uh, there um, a decade ago, you know, I think he was getting it in from Boston or somewhere. But um, and we've been present here, but just in little pockets here and there. Um, Daniel Daniel Jonas has been a great supporter, and just in terms of um, a, a palette and, and bouncing ideas off and introductions and what have you. Uh, but now um, we've got uh, this. We, we've just this is my second trip with uh, Wine Dogs and, and our and our distributors here. And these guys are good. These guys are Kiwis, and it feels really comfortable. It feels really, it feels right. Um, the timing's good. People uh, are understanding. New York clearly is a place that um, that understands our wine, uh, probably more so than San Francisco, I would say, uh, in the sense that our values in New Zealand uh, we're we're used to be selling um, wine that is. Uh, or, or, or approaching the market as the new thing, you know, the the the, the pioneering um, thing, and that's what served us in the beginning. When, but but now our values are different uh, for Rip, and we're about you know permanence, longevity, legacy, um, wines that are um, you know digestible and stuff, you know things that aren't just about olfactory stimulus. So we've got so the, this is more of an old world sort of market wine. Japan, we've been very very strong there for many years. Obviously, the UK. Um, you know, the, these are the people that understand us. I think New York can understand this very, very easily. And, and the reception that I've got in the last two visits with, you know, traveling, you know, beating the feet around town with, with Simon and Magnus has been exactly that. It's been um, really, really cool, you know, to see to see that. And, and obviously we've had some people visit us in the last uh, two or three years. We're, we're on the radar for people coming to, well, last 10 years, but now we're very much on the radar for visiting Soms coming down, Paul, uh, Paul Greco, uh, Dustin Wilson, um, uh, Bernie Sun. These guys have all been to us in the last two, well, year or two, three years and and, uh, and seen what we do and seen the land and, and uh, um, are now really strong supporters of it. Nick Mills, he dreams in French, he makes wine in New Zealand. Thank you very much for being here well, today. Well, that's all. Pleasure. Thanks, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. 
and thank you for listening.